0: Well, hello there, my friend, and welcome to today's episode of Seven Figure Millennials, where together you and I are on a mission to discover how we can prioritize our happiness health, and relationships as we make our entrepreneurial dreams a reality. And if this is your very first episode, I want to say welcome, beyond excited to have you here. And if you're returning, you know how much I appreciate you for coming back week after week. I don't get to use my Spanish that often, but today I got to use it a little bit. So today's guest is Jorge Contreras. And this is an absolutely wild story. I get pitched guests to come on the show all the time, and I have yet to actually accept a guest from an outreach that I don't know. But I I got an outreach from Jorge's team. And he was actually the first one I accepted because I heard his story and I was just blown away and had to have him on. And after spending some time with him, he's just an awesome dude. And I'm so excited to share his story and his journey with you today. So here's his bio. Jorge Contreras is a real estate investor and Airbnb coach and is passionate about helping people create time, financial and location freedom with Airbnb and real estate investing. He retired at age 29 became a millionaire by age 30 and now earns seven figures with his Airbnb business. And in this episode, you're going to learn so much, but I want you to look out for three specific things. Number one, how Jorge went from dealing drugs with his dad at age seven and eventually smuggling people across the border with his family at age 10 to eventually becoming a millionaire legally <laughs> before age 30. Number two, how Jorge started his first business as a Bachata instructor by texting some friends on his Blackberry phone. And just in case you don't know what Bachata is, it is a genre of Latin American music that originated from the Dominican Republic. And so there's a little bit of context there, but what he did is he texted some people on his Blackberry and he turned that one action into eventually becoming a world-renowned Bachata instructor and performer. So look out for that story. And number three, how Jorge literally plants money trees by leveraging real estate, and how you can generate passive income through Airbnb without buying properties, even if you're just starting out. So, so much to look forward to in today's episode, but I want you to look out for all that stuff. And the one thing I will say before we get going is if you're a returning listener and you haven't had a chance to leave a review yet, listen, I know you're out there. I'm looking at the downloads of the show and we're hitting about 7,500 downloads per month. So if you're one of those downloads listening to this and you haven't had a chance to leave a review, it would really help my day. I would love to give you a pre-show listener shout out in the future and uh, it's very easy to do. All you have to do to to do that is to go to ratethispodcast.com slash 7FM. It's gonna show you how to leave a review and if you don't have time to leave a review, that's totally cool too. You can just tap however many stars you feel like the show deserves. If you're listening specifically on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, you should just be able to scroll up, scroll down and leave a quick rating if you don't wanna leave a full review. So with all that said, please enjoy this incredible, wide-ranging, crazy story with my new friend, Jorge Contreras. You and I are on a mission to find out, and we have an incredible journey ahead of us. My name is Brandon Fong, and welcome to the Seven Figure Millennials podcast. Jorge Contreras, welcome to the show. Super excited to have you here, my friend.
1: You said that really good, Brandon. Appreciate that. Uh, Thank you for having me, it's an honor.
0: Awesome. I'm excited to dive into your story. When I first heard, I'm like, man, this is going to be a blast of an episode. So we're going to go all over the place. I finished your book yesterday, and uh, it was incredible, so we'll go into that. But inside of that book, you tell so many incredible stories, and so I was trying to think, where the heck could we start? Where do we start with all this stuff? So I would love to start with a story that kind of demonstrates what you were like as a kid, and the story has to do with ketchup. So you're at Jackson Elementary School. You love ketchup. Sell us the scene Set us the scene and tell us what happened.
1: (laughs) Oh my God, this is hilarious. So, yeah, I went to this uh, school called Jackson Elementary School. And, you know, we had this, I just remember, right? We had like this huge cover in the lunch area and then a bunch of those silver tables and, um, uh, you know, to be able to sit on. And they would tell you usually when you grab ketchup or mustard or mayonnaise to grab like two of each, max. But I love food on my ketchup i still do maybe not as much but i still eat a lot of ketchup like when i eat with people and there's ketchup or fries people still say like damn you love food on your uh ketchup uh, food on your ketchup right long story (laughs) short uh there was like this really short vietnamese chinese security guard that kind of made sure everybody was you know there was no fights or people were following the rules and i would get like 15 packets of ketchup And I would just kind of do like one or two squeezes and then put them to the side, grab another one, do two squeezes, (laughs) put them to the side. And so he noticed that I always grab more ketchup than I'm supposed to, right? I always breaking the rules. You could tell I was going to be an entrepreneur since I was a kid. So he like literally came by. And if you can imagine, like if this was the the ketchup, he would literally grab it and he did this. And he would just make sure that all the ketchup wasn't wasted. And then I had like so much ketchup because he got upset that I would use so much ketchup. And so that's kind of the story. And so
0: in the, in the book, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but like in the book, you describe a part where like he got so pissed. He like made you, he was like, eat it, man. Like eat, eat all the ketchup. Oh yeah, he, he was, was like, it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so you're sitting there with a bowl of ketchup and that's your, that's your meal for yeah. that. That's hilarious. I, mean, I love that. Time. I love that. Cause like you just identified, I think it kind of picks up, uh, you know, not always adhering to the rules, kind of beating to your own drum. So, uh, I wanted to start that cause I thought that was like a, a little bit of a fun one and we'll, we'll dive a little bit more into your story, but I think to set things up one more setup uh you talk about this all throughout your book you talk about a fish swimming in water i've heard this example given before but i think this kind of explains the context behind it so if you if you wouldn't mind explaining a little bit about that that uh analogy or metaphor or whatever it would be because i don't know my my uh, expressions but yeah tell us a little bit about a fish swimming in water
1: yeah so in my book I, i use an expression the fish doesn't know that it's in the water and if you really think about that the fish doesn't really know life outside of the water all it knows is what it knows The fish was born um, in the water, lives in the water, dies in the water. And the very same way that as human beings, we adapt to our environment for survival. You look at animals that have a lot of fur versus no fur versus different types of skin, depending on if it's cold or if it's heat or if it's water. And so as human beings and any living, breathing organism, we've always adapted to our environment for survival and we become a product of our environment and that's why surrounding ourselves with people that inspire us and motivate us is so you know important because it shapes who we become and so growing up as a kid you know uh i just have like all these i'm a big picture person i'm a visionary so i I always remember like picture moments especially if it if there's an emotion in the memory then i remember it but i don't remember like Movies, I remember pictures and so some of the first pictures that I remember is like being at my half-brother's funeral when I was five Selling drugs with my dad when I was seven smuggling people across the border when I was ten and then my dad passing away when I was 12 my mom abandoned me when I was 13 and Experiencing all these challenges and traumas that I could now recognize back then I thought that was just normal like everyone sells drugs Everyone experiences domestic violence where dad is hitting mom. Everyone has guns in their home. Everyone gets broken into their home. Like I just felt like every like this is normal. Everyone is experiencing these things. We just don't talk about them. And so when I think of my experiences in my childhood, that's what I felt like is I didn't know what I didn't know. I didn't know whether, whether it was right or wrong. It just was.
0: Hmm. So if everybody listening right now, you couldn't, you didn't pick up on that. There's lots of, there's lots to unpack here. And I, I don't want to glaze over this stuff because it's so incredible to see how you've taken all these ridiculously crazy abnormal experiences, even though you thought you were normal and turned them into fuel that has actually helped you propel in many different ways. So let's zoom in on some of those things that you just kind of revealed. Let's start with Halliday Street. So this is one of the apartments that you talk about uh, that you kind of grew up in and there was kind of a... Like you just said, you, you, know, you kind of got involved with dr- dealing drugs, but you didn't realize there was anything wrong with it. So would you mind kind of describing the apartment and maybe some of the, what it was like to exchange, like if somebody knocked on the door, somebody answered the door, what was your job? What did you have to do?
1: You said uh Holiday
0: Street? Yeah, Holiday Street. Okay, cool.
1: Yeah, so one of the picture moments that I remember, uh, probably the first one of where we lived when I was like three, four years old, was this apartment in uh, Santa Ana, Orange County, California. It's uh, right next to LA County for anybody that's not familiar. Um, And it was an apartment where when we smuggled family or strangers across the border, they would always stay with us. So there was always people coming and going, coming and going constant break-ins from like random people that would break in and even uh, uh, whatever that department is of of drugs and, and, and the law enforcement would always break in and destroy everything, looking for drugs and there was a lot of rats in the home so i remember it was just normal like having rats in your house like if you didn't have rats in your home like that's what do you mean you don't have rats in your home you know again the fish doesn't my roommates water <laughs> and then on top of that my dad knew that i loved going to mcdonald's and, and getting the happy meal that was like my favorite thing that just brought joy as a kid so he would be like hey jorjito let's go to mcdonald's and we'd go to mcdonald's but before that, we would go to these industrial buildings and, the, and then he would be – so imagine this was like some drug right here, right? And uh, he would be like, oh, like go, give, go go do the exchange with that guy over there. And then it would be like, hey, what's up? And we'd do like a money and drug exchange and then I'd come to the car. We'd go to McDonald's. But it was just normal. Again, the fish doesn't know that it's in the water.
0: Man, that's crazy. I can't, so you had, at least you got some good McDonald's afterwards or whatever. That's the, the, the <laughs> I wasn't was rewarded. I guess. Yeah. yeah. I just like, I, I read, I, I don't remember that one in the book, but it's just the, I pictured the, the scene so vividly. It's just like, you know, you and your friends are just sitting on the couch. I think this is, that's why it was like on Renee street was this other one I made a note of. It's like, you're just chilling at home. Somebody knocks on the door and it's your, it's your job. So talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah. So that was holiday street. And then in my five, like age five, six, we lived on Renee Street, which is a house that we rented. And uh, at this point, people continue to come to the house um, to buy drugs. And so when my dad wasn't home, like one of the things that's really interesting is that when you live in Mexico, it's so normal for a lot of people to have sort of like a liquor store inside of their home. So you can go to their house in Mexico and buy chips Soda, waters, like just things that you would find at a liquor store. And so we sort of had our own liquor store, but here in the US, but we weren't selling soda and chips and we were selling drugs. And when my dad wasn't home, me and my siblings would sell the drugs. And so I knew what a dime was, a 20, a 40, a, like I just knew everything because my dad would literally sit there on this little table, this little chair. And he would weigh it, cut it, pack it, and then he would store it in these little key uh, like key containers that have um, – they kind of just stick to any like metal, right? So under the bathroom sink, under the kitchen sink. So when people wanted to buy drugs, we'd just go in there, we'd take it out, here you go, and then we'd save the money and then give it to my dad when we came. And that was essentially our liquor store.
0: Hmm. Just nuts. Just nuts. Okay, so let's let's add I want to talk about your dad a little bit. But before we get there, I also want to talk about your other job that you alluded to that, uh, as you say in the book, your your other branch of the family business that you kind of just mentioned smuggling people into the US from Mexico. So you said in the book that you you did this when you were around 10 years old. Can you just share a little bit about like, what an exchange would be like for that and what your job was what your role was in the 10 year old?
1: Yeah, so if it was illegal, we did it when I was a kid, right? And so the other thing that we did was we smuggled people across the border. And so I vividly remember, uh, Brandon, we had this like Astro van. You still see them around, but it's just, it, it almost, it's like a, it's just like a square box, sort of. And in the very back, you have like this flat bench. Uh, and if you could just imagine the bench, right? You have the sitting area and then the resting area. So imagine if we created sort of like a T where if that sitting area continued through the back and you still had the T sitting your back rest area in the middle. So we added that back portion and it was maybe about maybe about 16 inches between the back seat and the actual doors to the back, right, that you would open like this and um, and we would lay one person facing this way, like basically they would just lay like this and then the other person opposite head this way headed this way and we would charge like $2,000 per person and uh, a lot of times me and one of my half-brothers would go from Orange County to TJ Bring them and cross them over. It was basically a two and a half hour drive each way and I would basically make like a hundred bucks every time I went and uh, My job was to make sure because one of the beliefs back then is like oh if you have a kid when you're crossing a border you're not going to bring any do anything illegal because why would you you know put the kid in danger and again i was like <laughs> 9 it's
0: part of your ten, dad's strategy <laughs>
1: yeah so i was like 9 10 11 years old and uh, and we would do these trips like pretty much every weekend me and my brother but my family would do it in between the week and my job was once we would you know we'd cross over we'd go to a certain area where we would pick them up from you know lay them down and my job was to make sure to look under the seat and make sure there wasn't any ha- any clothes hanging or just anything that would like give it away because every once in a while they did open, as we were crossing the border patrol or the you know custom border protection, they would open the sliding door, check under the seats. Okay, it's just a TV, all right guys, have a good day. So that was my job is to make sure that there was nothing hanging from the bottom of the bench.
0: Man. All right. So let's talk about the person that's in the driver's seat of that. And, you know, you, you mentioned a little bit about your dad. So first of all, I will say that you you dedicated the book to your dad. And I absolutely love that. And you say, I have no resentment or anger towards my dad. I'm extremely at peace about my childhood. I feel blessed and grateful. I believe that everything he was and everything he was not truly molded me into who I've become. So I love that. That's absolutely beautiful. And you, you I don't know if this will lead anywhere, but I was just kind of curious. So your dad's nickname was El Pollo. Why was your dad's nickname
1: El Pollo? That's a good question. I don't know why that was his nickname, but everybody called him El Pollo. Uh, and it means the, the 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 chicken for anybody that doesn't. The chicken, yeah, <laughs> means the chicken. Uh, but yeah, I'm not sure. It's a good question. I'll definitely need to ask my mom and uh, my older siblings. And okay, see I was you
0: know just that. curious about that one. I was like, I wonder if there was a, kind of a a funny story behind behind that one. But so so you mentioned to uh, a little bit earlier on when you kind of gave an overview of your childhood, you talked about how he he passed when you were around 12 years old. And then from that point forward, you know, you were kind of on your own. So can you talk a little bit maybe about like the the days after that, that experience happened to you, kind of what you had to go through and how you ended up kind of taking care of yourself before you were even a teenager?
1: (laughs) Yeah, definitely a lot to unfold there. Uh, So yeah, after he passed away, it just it created now in hindsight, right? And after doing a lot of personal work and transformation and emotional intelligence, what made it really difficult is that it made me believe that anybody who I allowed to love me would eventually leave me. And so growing up for many years, for like over a decade, for like maybe 13 years, maybe until I was like, Definitely up until 2016. So up until I was like 28, 29, six, seven years ago, I had this belief that anybody who got too cool, I allowed to get too close to me would eventually leave me, but I never associated that, that trauma and limiting belief was created from my dad's, you know, passing. And for, so for third, you know, for 15 years plus, I basically was a professional relationship sabotager, right? intimate relationships and business relationships. Cause I've been an entre- entrepreneur since I was 20 and there was a lot of people that I attracted into my life that wanted to grow with me, grow, in, grow my businesses with me. But I thought like, no, if I teach them too much, if I let them in too much, they might eventually leave me. And so I would end up sabotaging those relationships to validate the belief that I had, that I thought to be true. Cause we're always doing things in order to validate our beliefs to be true. We just don't make that connection. Um, The other thing is uh, shortly after he passed away, when I was like just about 13, I attracted my first role model, my first mentor that I talk about in the book, Mr. Parcell. And uh, he was my substitute teacher. So he wasn't my everyday teacher, was a substitute guy that would substitute like every once in a while. And so he knew the challenges that I was going through. And I clearly remember the day where he kneeled down to my eye level was I was sitting at my desk and he said, Jorge, like, you don't have to be like a victim to your environment. Like you can decide that you want to change your life, set a better standard for your younger siblings, and you can change your life and you can change the world. And again, going back to the fish doesn't know that it's in the water. I thought that what I was experiencing was just normal. Like everything becomes normalized. You think of things like the, the, the pandemic, right? Like it's normal to be in a pandemic. It's not weird anymore or wearing a mask. It's took but five years ago would be like, what the heck? This sounds like from a movie, but guess what? Now it's normal. And so for me, it just got normalized. It was like, this is normal. This is life. But what he brought to light was that I could have a new normal. Right. And so what I started to do is I started to basically just seek people that could be role models. So then I attracted my first, he was my first mentor. Then I attracted my first role model, which is one of my best friends. He actually manages all of my properties. His name's Ron. uh, I talk about him in the book. And what was really interesting about Ron, yet so simple is that every day, he he was a paralegal for like 20 plus years. He would wear a suit, a tie, always had a fresh haircut, drove a a nice car, and he had just a normal job. And he loved, he was into jujitsu and into fitness. And for me, I was like, the hell? This is weird. Like, this guy's weird. Like, he's just like this normal guy. And that's when I was like, damn, it's, it's, it's just because my, all my past experiences of role models were like very different. And so again, that just led me into a path where I started surrounding myself with people like Ron, who just lived normal, and then I started to realize that all the experiences I had as a young kid were actually not normal because I started to have some contrast. It's like if the fish got out of the water, maybe if a turtle went out of the water for the first time, or I don't know if they're born in the water, but, and, uh, and yeah, I just kept surrounding myself with people that inspired me, and that really led me into my personal journey of you know personal growth and things like that. Mm.
0: So beautiful and it's so cool how those people showed up at just the right time and that it kind of opened your eyes to a whole new world that you didn't even realize existed, but you were curious enough to continue exploring down that path. So let's, let's continue on. Let's follow down the story a little bit more. Uh, you're, well, oh, actually I'll just skip right to it. So somebody gives you a CD by Adventura. Um, tell us what happens from there. <laughs>
1: so at the time, uh, I was working, selling women's shoes, at a uh, macy's in south coast plaza it's like the second largest mall in southern california i was basically like the mexican al bundy selling women <laughs> to commission which i love because i've always loved sales i feel like it's the number one way to create financial abundance and at the time i was also attending community college which i did for three semesters before i dropped you know uh quit or basically dropped out of college and then started my first business at age 20 and so right before that, I was going to this college and I joined the salsa team because I always had a passion for music and for dance. And my dance partner, her name's Yanelli, she's like, Hey, you should check out. She was my salsa partner in the team. She said, Hey, you should check out this music called Bachata. I had no idea, no idea what it was. But she's like, Yeah, this is how you do the basic. She's like, one, two, three, tap. And then she was showing me the basic. And I was like, okay, I'm gonna check it out. And so I went to this, uh, we have in Southern California. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they're still around, I think they're still around, but we used to have these really popular music stores called Ritmo Latino, and you buy all the CDs. Um, You know, that's that's how we listened to back then. And I just fell in love with this music because in the music, like Bachata is actually, you know, it's a sensual partner dance from the Dominican Republic and it's known, it basically means like a party where people are drunk. That's what it means. They call them the Bachatas. And so this music basically formed from like bolero, merengue, and I forgot what other uh, music or genre. And I just fell in love with the music because I just felt like I related. It talked a lot about alcohol, a lot about loss, just over and over in all the music. But although the music sounds like really happy because they use a lot of acoustic guitar, it's actually like really sad music or love stories, heartbreaks, things like that. And I just fell in love with the music And so this was like in 2006. So I started to watch the very few YouTube videos, um, that there were, Uh, there's this very known, well, well well-known, um, dancer. Her name is Georgia Alcocer and she would, you know, have a bunch of videos dancing at these barbershops. And so I fell in love with the music, started practicing it, really just dedicated my, my, you know, life outside of work and school to learning this dance for like three months. And back then I had the BlackBerry phone and I sent a group text to a bunch of my friends and I said, Hey guys, I'm going to start teaching Bachata. And people knew what the music was, but it wasn't as popular to dance to it rather other than just listen to it. Because again, this Aventura group had like sold out concerts and they've had them for like 20 plus years. So I started teaching it basically facing a brick wall, had my little stereo with the the CD and I started to teach it for free. Then eventually I started charging $5 and then $7 and that's basically you know how all of that unfolded.
0: Mm. Okay, so I wanna, there's several things I wanna pick apart. I'm gonna take a, uh, a break from this because I want you to describe, you you talk about this a lot in your book, building an airplane on the way down from jumping off a mountain. And I think that that, that kind of, that sets up the, the tone for some of the other stuff. So would you mind describing that, what that means?
1: Yeah, so in my book, uh, Breaking Through, Available on Amazon. Check it out, guys. (laughs) It's a a mindset book, by the way. Mindset and transformation. I don't talk about really Airbnb and real estate much, but I I keep referencing that I'm jumping off a mountain and building an airplane on the way down. And I feel like that's been the story of my life, meaning always reinventing myself, taking chance, taking risk, uh, be willing to let go of who I had become so I can be who I've always been. And in this example, I basically quit my job, my my secure, well-paying, very well-paying job at Bank of America uh, where I was doing mortgage loans, setting up business, checking accounts and learned a lot of, I felt like I had my own podcast back then because I would sit down across these entrepreneurs and investors and open up their business checking accounts and they own gas stations, apartments, but I didn't know what a podcast was back then. And so I basically quit just from one day to the next. I, I quit my job, dropped out of college and went all in on my business. And what happened is we, me and my partner, uh, Leslie, who I met uh, through dance and started our business together, we started creating opportunities to travel and teach at these Latin dance festivals in the US and then eventually international and in my curriculum and my while I was going to college they, the, the teacher said that if I missed his class three times that I would get withdrawn and so I had missed two times from traveling and here we have an opportunity to go to Hawaii and teach I always wanted to go to Hawaii and it was a, a, a once in a lifetime experience or you know so I was going to go to Hawaii and go all in on this brand new business that Who knew what was going to happen or take the safe route Mm -hmm. where I was going to continue working at the bank, continue going to school for who knows what. And I was at a crossroads like, man, what do I do? And so what did I do? I jumped off the mountain and built an airplane on the way down, meaning I didn't have all my ducks lined up. I didn't have all the finances. I didn't have the security. I didn't know how I was going to pay my rent, you know, maybe after three months of savings that I had. But my vision was more powerful than the fear of what could happen. Um, and I think I've always had a bigger fear of like of, of having these thoughts of, like, what would have happened if I would have tried? And I never want to feel like that. I'd rather try, and if it doesn't work or if I fail, then that's okay. But I never want to live my life and look back and think, what would have happened?
0: Hmm. Yeah, I, I had the I know you're come from Rich Dad Poor Dad. I had the opportunity to meet, um, why is it Keith Cunningham, who is actually one of the Rich Dads, in Rich Dad Poor Dad that Robert Kiyosaki learned from and, and that was one of his quotes that stuck with me when I had the chance to meet him. It was like the his definition of hell was getting to meet the person that you could have become like that you you could have been. It's like having that kind of crazy moment. And so he's like, he's like my whole goal in life is to become that man. So that when I get to meet him one day, it's like, Hey, I know you. Um, so, so that was really cool. You also said a quote, go ahead.
1: I was going to share something quick that I got to visit, um, at my let's home in a beach, like a $30 million home. And my friend was doing a podcast with him a few years ago. And so he told us about his belief that, when he dies, he's going to meet the greatest version of himself. And when he meets the, that greatest version of himself, he wants to be so identical that you can't tell them apart.
0: Yeah, Th- and this is Keith Cunningham, right? This is what you're talking about? Yeah, he's- uh, Ed Milet. My... Oh, Ed Milet, Ed Milet. Yeah, that, that's awesome. Maybe he got yeah. it from
1: there. Who knows? <laughs>
0: oh, I don't, I don't know. But I've, I've heard that quote multiple times. I just think it's so powerful. And you also said something that you kind of just passed by. I want to zoom into it. I'm not going to get it correctly, but you talked about like getting in the way of who you were like, yeah. like lots of times. So, so I want you to expand on that a sure. little bit before we kind of go back because I yeah. think that, that's it's a really a, it powerful it insight.
1: Uh, while I was attending a, a personal development training in 2016, I went into this training with a belief that who I am is getting in the way of who I want to become. I think that sounds pretty logical. Like, hey, the person I am, I mean, I'm getting in the way of myself and the person I want to become. So I'm getting in the way of who I want to become. Um, And then the trainer said, actually, he said, who you have become is getting in the way of who you've always been. And I was like, whoa. (laughs) Expand on that, right? And so he said, yeah, he said, when you were three years old, he said, what did you have that you don't have now? And then somebody finally screamed it out and he, they said, freedom. He said, when you were uh, three years old, you didn't doubt yourself. You didn't have any fear. If you fell, you just got back up and you did it again. But what happened between three and now? The challenges, the loss, the death, the divorces, the whatever, all basically all the trauma. And so if you want to live and become the greatest version of yourself, all you have to do is let go of the person that you become so that you could go back to just being completely free.
0: That's so beautiful. I had another guest on the show, Shannon Graham, and I don't think he mentioned this specifically on the show, but I've listened to the first episode of his podcast probably five or six times because I think it's really profound, but he talks about one of the fundamental concepts of leadership is actually worthiness. Um, Because it's like you're like if you're going to be a good leader, like you have to step into your full worthiness. And if you're not feeling worthy, you're going to create downstream effects on your organization, the other people that you lead. And the, the trick about worthiness that he talks about that I think is so profound is that it's like you will never be more worthy than you are right now. There's no amount of external validation, accomplishments that you can have that will make you more worthy. So it's kind of speaking to the same thing is like tapping back into that version of yourself that you already are and all the crap that's been built up over the years um, and and kind of going back to those first principles of what it was like to be human. So I think that's beautiful and thank you so much for sharing that. Of course. So let's let's go back to, so we're talking about bachata and we're talking about building a plan on the way down. Uh, I think part, I want to, maybe explain a little bit more because I feel like as much as you did jump off and build a plane on the way down, you also, before you made the full jump, you had you know, you've been experimenting a little bit. It wasn't like, hey, I heard this bachata CD and I'm quitting everything and I'm going to do bachata now. It's like you, you started building up a buzz around this you had some free classes you were kind of building up a little bit and then you made the jump so let's talk a little bit about how you actually made that transition because as i understand you ended up creating this whole movement of bachata and like turning it into when people thought that you were just this crazy (laughs) dude so so talk a little bit about how you went from being that guy doing free classes to how you ended up actually transitioning into something that you did full-time
1: yeah definitely so i started with those classes in the backyard and then um I found this dance studio in Buena Park, California called EZ Dance Studio and at the time I started to do a little bit of quinceanera choreography and there was a very, very uh, well known uh, dancer like named Christian Oviedo. He was like this world champion, 20 plus world championships and just sort of became like a, like a legend in the world of salsa and a lot of people that dance salsa started to dance bachata because that's what they played at the nightclub except before i started really expanding the dance uh as well with many others it was the the dj said that they would play bachata to make people leave the club because that's how (laughs) it was right it's funny because like some years later they all started becoming full-time bachata djs because bachata over you know pretty much overtook salsa and all the salsa clubs uh, turned into bachata clubs, but Yeah, going back to that part from I went to this easy dance studio and the uh, owner uh, Who now, you know rest in peace uh, Evelyn she uh, She was there and I walked in and I said hey I'm interested in teaching bachata at your dance studio and I started name-dropping. I'm like yeah, I know Christian because Christian um, Basically gave me a couple quinceañera gigs and he was sort of sort of like a role model and would give me tips and stuff And so I was like, yeah, you know, I know Christian, I hang out with him all the time and I started just name dropping. I'm like, yeah, like I'm an, I'm a, you know, an experienced instructor and I'd love to teach here. And she's like, okay, well, yeah, that'd be great. We're looking for somebody to, you know, teach this because it's, you know, becoming more popular. And so I started teaching on Tuesdays. Then I started doing Thursdays and I started doing these once a month boot camps, uh, teaching like three hours of Bachata. And I remember I started, I would actually pay by the hour, like $50 an hour to rent. So I paid like what, $150 for three hours. And I basically enrolled like 100 people at $20. But I went to these events and I would put flyers on people's cars, right? Myself, like by myself, hours just putting flyers, promoting this bachata bootcamp. And then I made like $2,000, maybe like $1,800 of it was profit. And this was over a weekend and this started opening up my eyes. I'm like, man, it takes me like three weeks to make that money, you know, working uh, 120 hours where I did this maybe in like 10 or 12 hours from start to finish. So I just started to realize that even though I didn't know this terminology, but I was starting to get paid for a result or an outcome rather than by the hour. (laughs) and 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 as entrepreneurs right we can create really big results and outcomes in a short amount of time rather than just having a low ceiling of by the hour so then after that i met my dance partner leslie we started the first bachata dance company we started the first bachata festival in los angeles i went on and started the first bachata nightclub in the us and then uh, next thing you know is i got eight streams of income all from bachata group lessons, privates. I used to have instructional DVDs that we started making since 2008. And every time we would travel, I got to travel to over 25 countries over the next eight years, teaching, traveling, performing, teaching other instructors. Um, now I got to go to Malaysia, like a lot of parts of Asia, France, Italy, like 25 countries plus. It was, it was a, definitely a really good chapter in my life.
0: I want to highlight a few things from your story there that I think is relevant for everyone is that the the small test that you did, like you didn't go straight to like, I'm going to buy... I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to rent out this place for $2,000 a month and and start trying to fill it up. Like you just started with like, Hey, let me approach this one person. You put together an irresistible offer for them. You got to rent the place for 150 bucks and you turn that into a boot camp. Like, I love that you kind of just started really small and then you innovated and tested and then obviously kind of leveraged that and compounded that into some of the other stuff that you did. So that was, that's awesome. Let's, let's jump to November 10th, 2012. What happens then?
1: So November 10, 2012, I had my back surgery in my L5S1. And prior to dance, you know, I played a lot of sports in high school, four years of basketball, four years of volleyball, prior uh, or like from junior high to beginning years of high school, I skateboarded a lot. And so over the years, I had a lot of injuries, even a few like car accidents. Uh, On top of that, with the dance business, um, our choreographies we started doing a lot of acrobatics acrobats where i would like lift my partners you know above the shoulders and i never had any proper training i never warmed up never cooled down so just over the years there was a lot of wear and tear i was also again going back to what i said earlier we are always doing things in order to validate the beliefs that we believe to be true and so one of the beliefs that i had was that work hard equals success and I, i believe that working hard gets you to a certain level, but working hard doesn't get you to the next level, right? It's about working smart. It's about the less I work, the more I can create. And to in order to validate my belief of work hard equals success during the week, I would teach maybe, you know, basically work nine to 12 hour days. On the weekends, I was living in airports and hotels, traveling around the world uh, with time changes. (laughs) And essentially I never had any rest time. I never took care of my body. I never listened to my body. I wasn't in tune with my body. I was just working just a workaholic. So that wear and tear, uh, and stress just manifested in my body to the point where I just couldn't walk anymore. And my wife, girlfriend at the time was like, well, you don't have health insurance. Let's go to Tijuana, Mexico. And talk to a surgeon because I had tried everything that I knew under the sun about holistic ways to heal my back, like you name it, I did it. And so I invested like $15,000 prior to the back surgery and nothing worked. Went to Mexico to like the best or yeah, a lot of people go there for a lot of procedures because it's called uh, Los Angeles Hospital, even though it's in Tijuana, Mexico. Saw the surgeon, I was hunched over like permanently. I couldn't, stand, I couldn't stand up. And when he looked at me, he's like, man, like we need to do this surgery tomorrow morning. $5,000 uh, for the whole thing. And he said, by the way, it's a 50-50 chance you'll never walk again. Which was crazy because I use my body to make money. Like I'm a professional dancer, like, but the pain at that point, was so bad over a three year period, anything was better than the pain. As so I basically took the risk, and luckily, four hours after four hours of surgery time, four hours after the surgery, eight hours later, I could do things that I couldn't do before the surgery. I could stand up straight, I could lift my leg, my sciatic pain was gone. It was just like magical.
0: Hmm. So that was obviously a huge wake up call in many ways for you. Like obviously that was kind of like the pinnacle of, holy shit, I pushed myself way too damn hard. (laughs) Like you're doing all this stuff. So um, obviously that kind of like created a little bit of an insight for you to want to pivot and change a little bit again. So can you talk a little bit about like that realization that you had and then where you wanted to go after you realized that you couldn't just make money using your body from dancing and teaching and all that stuff?
1: Yeah, so there's a quote. Looking at it right here, uh, it's by the Dalai Lama. And it says, when asked what surprised him most about humanity, answered man, because he sacrifices his health in order to make money. Then he sacrifices money to recuperate his health. And then he is so anxious about the future that he does not enjoy the present. The result being that he does not live in the present or the future, he lives as if he is never going to die and then dies having never really lived, and so I have this quote in the same frame since my back surgery, and so that was basically my experience, right, Brandon? Mm-hmm. Is I was basically sacrificing my health to make money, <coughs> excuse me, and then I ended up using that money to recuperate my health, <laughs> mm-hmm. and um, so that that kind of took me through like a. a Like a spiritual awakening, like a spiritual journey, because there was a lot of things that I experienced post surgery that are just unexplainable in regards to there's like physical pain and then there's like spiritual pain. And the spiritual pain is like just unbearable pain. And I had these unbearable pains post surgery that when I would go to the doctors and to the hospital, they're like, there's nothing there. Like you're fine. But I'm like, no, like I'm having these crazy pains in the middle of the night and like I can't sleep. And it's just, I was basically like the pain would like cripple me. And it was funny cause at the time I had this uh, student that would fly in from France to take one-on-one lessons with me. And she, she had a really thick accent, couldn't speak English that well. But she's like, when I was telling her what I was experiencing, it was funny as I was teaching her, even though like I could barely walk. <laughs> That's how out of tune I was with my body. And then she's like, ah, uh-uh, snake. And I was like, what? And then she explained to me. She said, yeah, like you're shedding your old skin and transforming into like a new version of you. And I was like, whoa! I even got the chills now, right? And so yeah, well, it, it took me down this like spiritual journey where I began to prioritize my health over anything in Mm. life. Um, I love that. So now since I started making vision boards in 2014, the very first, you know, section of my vision board in the top left is all about health, mental, emotional, physical, spiritual, like every aspect of health. Um, And so still today, that's, that's always a priority over finances over anything
0: mm-hmm. and
1: uh and it, it was a, a very powerful lesson because um, they say right if you don't if you don't make time for your health you will be forced how does it go you'll be forced to make time for your sickness or something like yeah there's your wellness you'll be forced to make time for your sickness or something like that
0: yeah there's a quote that i heard i don't know where it's attributed to but it's like a man who has his health has a thousand goals but a man who does not have his health has only one yeah. Um, so it's like, shit. Yeah. You know, like, I mean, it makes it, it makes it so, so real. Let, I want to, I want to, let's maybe get in like, cause we're kind of right here in the story. I would love to maybe get like a kind of a quick funny story in in this spot and then we'll move into some of the real estate stuff. But would you, <laughs> would you mind telling the story about the first time you told Stephanie that you loved her?
1: Oh my God. Well, it, it connects back to, uh, to one of those unexplainable spiritual pain episodes, probably the, right. because after this experience, the pain just went away. (laughs) It's like a few weeks post back surgery and we're in my bedroom. And uh, I asked her, I was like, hey, can you open the the window? Because it's kind of hot. But then she didn't do it immediately. So I kind of got a little upset and I got up and I made like a sharp move where I just stood up sharply to open the window. And then I just got that pain for the last time. So here I am on my floor holding my stomach screaming at the top of my lungs. And I had experienced this before, so to her she's kinda like, man, there's like she can't do nothing. So she's just kind of there like just watching me. And I literally thought I was gonna die. Like I don't know what it's like to have a baby <laughs> myself. But I feel like I had a baby without <laughs> without the epidural. That's just how bad it was. It's the it's probably the only pain I can I can uh You know, maybe uh, compare it to, and I I guess I thought I was gonna die. So I figured that if I'm gonna die, maybe I should tell her how I feel about her. (laughs) And so I basically I looked at her and I said, "Hey, I love you." (laughs) And then the hospital, the ambulance came, took me to the hospital, and uh, they're like, "Look, if if your if your girlfriend takes you to the hospital, it's free. It's only five minutes away." If we take you, it's gonna be a thousand dollars. And uh, honestly, I don't even, re- even remember how it went. I think, yeah, I think the hospital, I think they took me in the ambulance. But anyways, that was the first time I told her I loved her.
0: And the last time you experienced that phantom pain. So maybe maybe the pain was was worth it. Maybe it, it was just, maybe your snake skin was just waiting for you to tell you that you loved her or heard that you loved her. It <laughs> just went away. Pretty much.
1: That was uh, the first time. And she did say, I love you back. <laughs> good. 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 That is good.
0: Awesome. So let's, let's, ju- let's dive into the real estate stuff. And then I just want to, I would love if we can have some time to cover some of the ancestral karma stuff, because that's obviously like the focus of your, your breaking through. So um, I would love to, to talk about the first time that you had the chance to attend a rich dad, poor dad seminar. Um, and then the call that you made to your mom after that.
1: Yeah. So I had been wanting to get into real estate investing. Like I knew how to buy my house, which I did in 2012, did a new construction in my backyard in 2014. I rented all the bedrooms, which allowed me to live mortgage payment free. But then I was like, how do I buy more houses? Like I did, I feel like buying a home and buying investment properties is like two different worlds. And so, you know, I started searching on Facebook uh, in uh, 2015, like just real estate investing stuff. And then Les Brown popped up, like in a video in an ad, and they said, "Hey, it's uh, I think they called it, it was like something symposium, and it was basically a event like 5,000 plus attendees, free at the LA Convention Center, and people were talking about real estate investing from single family homes to apartments and." um, they were talking about all, all these different real estate strategies, wholesaling, flipping, Amazon, Amazon um, stocks, all kinds of stuff. And after this, I believe it was a two day in-person event, I took my one of my best friends uh, and my best man, uh, Victor. And I, I knew I, want, I was seeking investing, real estate investing knowledge and education. So then they, they had like this small upsell for 300 bucks attend a three day real estate investing seminar. So like, they didn't even think twice, signed up for it. And uh, I, uh, my buddy didn't want to do it, um, but I bought. I brought my girlfriend at the time, my wife now, and her being the, the opposite of jumping off and building and off, of, off a mountain and building on an airplane way down. She'd want to have the airplane, maybe a second airplane as a backup and then jump off the mountain, right? <laughs> so we compliment each other, right? And so i remember when we walked in she walked in kind of like this like what are they going to try to sell us here um uh, you know and um uh, when we walked in you know we sat down and it was just an incredible three-day workshop uh, learned so much about real estate investing all these different strategies like it really just opened up and expanded my mind and i knew right away on day one like this is what i'm looking for So the coaching investments were ranged from 12,000 to 35,000 being their master high-end premium package that came with a one-on-one three-day mentor. And I was like, I want the best, like sign me up for that $35,000 package. And most of my income, almost all of it was cash. So I don't have any money. I didn't have credit cards with $35,000 limit. So I went home and basically brought like a bag of cash, (laughs) $35,000. They thought I was crazy. They're like, okay. They're like, well, I guess we got to take this through uh, like customs or whatever. But, you know, they had their procedure on how to claim it. Because anytime it's $10,000 or over, they got to fill out a form. But they're running a legitimate business, right? Real estate education through the rich dad, poor dad company.
0: So on the third day,
1: I called my mom. Uh, One of my biggest goals that was on my vision board in 2014 was to buy my mom a house. This was a five-year vision board. So my goal was to buy her a home by 2019. So here we are in uh, 2015. I called my mom and I was just crying. You know like that ugly cry where like, you just can't talk? I called my mom. And I told her in Spanish, but I'll say it in English. And I called mom, I said, hi, mom. And she's like, hi, mijo, how are you? And then I just started crying. Like so many emotions just started coming through me and I couldn't talk. And coming from the background and experiences as a child, like we always think like the worst. So she's like, oh my God, what happened? Are you okay? And I, I couldn't talk, I couldn't talk, I couldn't talk, I couldn't talk. And she's like, where are you? Tell me where you are. <laughs> so finally, I'm able to, to kind of like breathe, gather myself. And I'm like, mom, I found how I'm going to buy you your home. What's wrong? Are you okay? Where are you? <laughs> and that was basically the conversation. And then 18 months later, after going through this $35,000 $35, real estate education, I gave her the keys to her very first home. And that's the story.
0: What was that day like like you hand her the keys how did she react man
1: oh, of course she like cried it was just man it, it was just probably the the probably like at the top of my top two accomplishments maybe other than kids and marriage like it was just the most rewarding experience because when i was like four years old actually my my spiritual coach told me this um she said that when i was four years old um, I made a decision that I was gonna take care of my mom just from everything I saw her you know experience and really just go through and like I'm like man she's the real warrior so for me uh, that was my goal is to buy her a home so that she wouldn't have to uh you know sleep in different people's homes different family members' homes and that didn't have like stability
0: hmm did you feel that accomplishing that, uh, somebody I was talking to the other day used the term contract. It's kind of like a contract that you made in your a spiritual contracts. Like, I yeah. want to take care of my mom. Did you, did you feel like a different weight lift off your shoulder when you were able to accomplish that? Because I feel like it was probably more than just, I want to take care of my mom. It was like, that was a commitment that you made to yourself as a kid. And that probably freed you up to some other stuff. Is that what it felt like? Yeah,
1: for sure. Uh, which, you know, going back to, all the the challenges and obstacles, right? It's like my my spiritual coach says that a lot of my back surgery and back experience had to do with all a lot of my childhood trauma and all the weight that I carried on my back. Mm. So she said that once I had like, once I went through like transformation and personal development and created a lot of breakthroughs, it was like I got a monkey or a gorilla off my back that I was carrying. Mm. That's Um, incredible. So, I feel like that experience was like another layer of like, like, she's okay now.
0: Yeah. Such a powerful story. Thank you so much for sharing. So, there's, there's, kind of two different routes we can take right now. And our time is kind of, this time is absolutely flying. So thank you so much for sharing all these incredible stories. So like, I would love to talk about breaking through or we can dive into some of your Airbnb real system. So I'll let you choose choose the adventure you want to go on. I think both are yeah. fantastic. We or can talk about can, the Airbnb but, stuff.
1: Um, I okay. think it will kind of connect everything um, So it'll resonate.
0: Yeah. Okay. So I downloaded your, your ebook on this topic. And, and so it was three ways to earn passive income through Airbnb. This is kind of like your synthesis of your real estate knowledge after having invested in your own. This is kind of like the way that you love approaching things now. So we'd love for you to maybe share just a high level. Uh, and then we can dive in a little bit. What are, what are the three ways that you can earn through Airbnb? Yeah. So the three ways that
1: you can start an Airbnb, uh, passive income business is through, uh, the most popular is the arbitrage or subleasing model, right? Where you rent properties, get permission in writing, launch them as a short term rental. And that's like by far the most popular. Uh, the second most popular is the co-hosting where you're basically managing other people's short term rentals and then getting a piece of the pie that comes in. And then the third least popular, but should be the goal for everyone in the long term is the ownership because that's where you create long term wealth. Mm-hmm. But due okay, to so let's limited finances, right? People start with the first two usually, and then build up to the owning strategy.
0: Sure. So let's zoom in on the arbitrage one. I, I watched some of your YouTube videos on kind of how you explain this, but let's say let, let's just kind of walk people through like a scenario of like what that could potentially look like and how you would assess a property. Um, obviously you don't have time to go into so much detail, but if sure. somebody's like, Oh, that sounds interesting. What, what are, what are some next steps?
1: Uh, so in order to start an Airbnb, correct? To yeah, to
0: sublease. So like, so, to, and then, and then sure. leverage that to do short-term. So there's really
1: three things. Um, when I look at uh, starting an Airbnb business, um, there's the data, the ordinance and the contract. And so um, the first two is that va- first is validating the data. Meaning you need to look at the performance of existing comparable short-term rentals to the one that you want to launch. For example, if I wanted to launch a two-bedroom apartment in Long Beach, California, I want to look at, hey, what are similar properties, similar in bedrooms, bathrooms, square footage, amenities, and location? What are similar properties already generating right now? So if I pull the data using softwares, I can see like, oh, look, there's three apartments that are all two bedrooms, one bath, and they're all bringing in on average about $6,000 a month when you look at the performance of the last 12 months. And then I can go on websites to find properties for rent that where I can maybe find a similar apartment in a similar area that's maybe renting for like $2,000 a month, right? That's important because you don't want to launch a short-term rental without knowing if it's going to be profitable or if they're already profitable in the area the second thing is validating the short-term rental ordinance in that area is it not regulated where you basically don't need a permit go ahead and launch it's regulated you need a permit to launch great how do i get the permit and then you launch or three they don't allow them period And so in about 95% of the cities, um, you either um, need a permit or don't need a permit. And so that's the second thing. And the third thing is the contract is basically calling the landlord, pitching the strategy. It's going to be a numbers game, just like in all real estate. Not everyone's going to say yes. And then it's just a matter of um, getting permission in writing and signing a contract.
0: Cool. So let's, I always like to kind of maybe give people like a, what's the, what's the gateway drug next step that you could take? <laughs> and then, and then you can kind of figure out, you don't have to know the, the whole path. So like, let's zoom in on like those early steps. I know, do you, can you give people some, maybe some recommendations as to where they can find a site that gives that data that they can access before they decide to maybe find a site on our apartment on Zillow or something like that?
1: So you're saying to in order to validate the data first, right?
0: Yes. Yeah. Where do you go to do that? How do you do that? Yeah.
1: So the two sites that we like to use is a uh, Mashvisor, which works everywhere in the U.S. except Puerto Rico. And then we have uh, AirDNA, which, which basically works anywhere in the world. Got it. Right. And, and so, so these are the gonna... two softwares that we use in order to validate the data.
0: Okay. And let's say you're, so, so you, so you go on here, you find you validate the data, you find some spots. Are you encouraging, I'm assuming most of this is done remotely. You have some teams that you hire that take care of the cleaning and the the maintenance and the communication, that kind of stuff. So if somebody's going to start out, do you recommend that they find a place that is local that they can kind of make sure that they kind of maybe have their hands in it a little bit to get started or do you recommend, where do you recommend they they start out with?
1: When I started, I didn't have any mentorship, in that specific area because there wasn't many people teaching Airbnb five years ago. Uh, otherwise, I would have invested into coaching first in that particular niche. Even at Rich Dad, they didn't teach short-term rentals. It was you know, long-term rentals. And mm-hmm. so I basically figured it all out on my own over the last five years. And um, I started with properties that were basically in my neighborhood, in my city. And then over the years as i started to automate build a team in a system i then started to delegate and automate and launch in other you know in another location you know two and a half hours south and this is actually a property in san diego uh, again i live in you know in l.a county so it's two and a half hours away and i've never seen this property i've had it for almost three years mm-hmm. and so typically uh, if someone doesn't really have knowledge and doesn't have experience and they're not learning from someone, then I would definitely say like, hey, start local. But if you're investing into coaching and you learn how to build a team and a system and learn the ins and outs from someone who's already done it, then it's very, very possible and pretty simple to launch your first one anywhere, out of state, out of the country, uh, just because you're gonna follow a proven formula.
0: Love it. So just so everyone knows, uh, if you wanna work with Jorge, you have to bring $35,000 in cash. Bring it to his <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm totally kidding. Totally kidding. But I, that's one of the things I admire about you. And just the, in the research I did for you, is like obviously you you do invest in mentors. Like like whenever you're looking at upgrading at the next level, and you've learned this stuff the hard way. So I've checked out some of your YouTube videos. I've i I read your PDF. If just I know we're not ending things quite yet. But if people wanted to explore more of the real system and kind of go down and and maybe figure out how they can work with you, where can they find out about that stuff? Yeah
1: anybody wants to learn about airbnb coaching mentorship or just start learning about the business man we post uh youtube videos every monday and wednesday just go to youtube the jorge contreras um, i also have a podcast about short-term rentals also the jorge contreras show available on itunes and everywhere and then of course like my other than youtube and my podcast uh instagram we post content like every single day got it and okay so that's there's a there's a the... website too.
0: Yeah, we'll make sure that's all linked up in the show notes. So, the Jorge Contreras, J O R G E C O N T R E R A S. Uh, did I get that right? Maybe yeah, I want to make right, sure that, before I say that super confidently. So, <laughs> <at the beginning, laughs> yeah. so, that'll all be linked up. Um, and that's awesome. And I think there's some great next steps for people if they wanted to start exploring. Uh, maybe just get a feel for your market, like what's what's in there. Look around, Max Advisor, Air DNA, and uh, see some of the opportunities for for doing that. And uh, I I would recommend checking out the YouTube channel. I just I had never explored this as as something that I should look into. And uh, he, you you're a phenomenal teacher, my friend. You explained it very clearly, so would in, would encourage everybody to check that out. So. Um, Sweet. So we actually, we, we covered some of that. If we, I know we're going, we have a lot, we've covered a lot today already. People were like, Whoa, we, we, we you know, so many stories. And so now we're kind of in the, like the, 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 tactical stuff, things that you can apply. So the other thing you talk about in your book, breaking through is this concept of, uh, ancestral karma. So we'd love to maybe talk about that a little bit and talk about how people can overcome some of the stuff coming from somebody that has overcome lots of ancestral karma.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would say, um, like one of the ancestral k- karmas is, um, the belief that money doesn't grow on trees. And I think most of us, uh, especially if you come from like a minority background, um, we grew up with this fear, scarce limiting belief that money doesn't grow on trees. And I remember as a kid, like if I wanted certain things, it was like, what do you think money grows on trees? And I realized that for only those who haven't been able to create and accomplish growing money on trees, push their limiting beliefs, fears, self-doubt, self-worth on us, right? So I learned that money does grow on trees if you learn how to plant money seeds because it really does grow on trees, right? Like right now, I have all my, my entire portfolio of Airbnbs while I'm doing this podcast, they're all making me money right now. And it's every single day, just like a plant in a tree, even though we might not see it, is growing every single day. Um, So I would say that's the first one is, again, we are always doing things, we're always taking certain actions in order to validate our beliefs. So one of the first things that people need to do is to upgrade their beliefs. Because so many of us are, like I don't know what iOS version my iPhone has now, but it's like, the most advanced, right? But a lot of people today are operating with like an iOS version of like five years ago, 10 years ago, because it's the version that they basically got from their parents, who got from their parents and their parents. So some of the stuff that, some of our beliefs, right? They're from like hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And people never question those beliefs. They just do these things because their parents did it and they did it because their parents did it and so on and so forth. So one of the things that I made it, A practice is to just question everything, Mm. everything from relationships, health, beliefs, money, just everything. And really, once I get educated, basically come up with my own beliefs that I feel serve me to become the greatest version of myself.
0: Mm. That reminds me of, I, I don't know whose model this is, but there's like the four stages of learning. Have you heard of this before? It's like it starts off as like unconscious incompetence. Right. You don't yes. even yes. know what there is to know. And then it becomes conscious, or conscious incompetence. So like you're, you are you kind of suck at it, but you yeah, at least you know you suck at it. And then it turns into conscious competence where you can do it, but you have to think really hard about it. And then eventually moves into unconscious competence where you can do it at the high levels. And so I think that it's really, it, it, it just kind of speaks to like several things that you've said on your journey, you know, one, like even Mr. Parcel, Parcel, Parcel I don't remember right. his, name. it's like, yeah, he's like, he opened his door. That was, that was you going from unconscious incompetence or maybe even below that, not even realizing it's like, Oh shit, there's a whole world here. Yeah. Um, and, and so I think that that's so powerful to question, question everything because that might be a trigger for you to then become consciously aware of it and then you can decide whether or not you want to keep that belief or if you want to upgrade it and i love the perspective that the the um ios upgrade that we're we're sitting at we're sitting at ios in 2007 when it was first released if we're still dealing with our (laughs) our ancestral karma stuff so it's your choice to upgrade that exactly so Ancestral, so, so um, you mentioned one, money doesn't grow on trees. The one of the ones that your first one that you talk about is the one that we kind of talked about in the very beginning, but it's about being a victim of your circumstance. Um, yep. So let's talk a little bit about that one, because I think that was another one that, that might be relevant for people. Yeah.
1: So you are a victim of your circumstance is ancestral karma one in my book. And this essentially means that we are operating from life happens to me. And anytime we have a belief that we need something, like just any external force in order for our lives to get better, then it's a very disempowering belief because you can't control external things. So like if I need the education system to change in order for my life to get better, then I feel powerless. If I need the government to change in order for my life to get better, I feel powerless. If I need my family To change in order for my life to get better, then I feel powerless. And so it's this belief of things happen to me. And we call it basically living from victim, where things happen to me. And uh, this is the person that is basically always whining, always complaining, always gossiping, basically living. From like a a very, and operating from like a very low frequency negative, basically like a really negative person. And what we need to do is to change our belief from things happen to me to things happen for me. And to do that, you have to rewrite your story. Like everyone has a story. Even if you, even if someone's listening to this and they're like, oh my God, I never experienced any of that. that. I had a perfect childhood. Is like, that could be the biggest challenge that is holding you back today because you had everything handed and you don't know what it takes to create. You never had to struggle. And so now that your parents are taking care of you, you're just struggling, doing the bare minimum to just get by. And so for me, I need to rewrite my story so i can go from victim to victor and that means saying you know what it's because my father wasn't around as a child that i now value being present for my kids it's because my father cheated on my mom and i saw how much it impacted her that i'm so loyal to my wife it's because my dad's selling drugs, in and out of jail, you know, dying from alcohol that I don't smoke, I don't drink, pretty much never have, and I don't have any of those bad habits today. And so I basically took all those experiences, challenges, obstacles, and used them as stepping stones to become the person that I am rather than as excuses to recreate the same story. So I believe that everything in my life happens for me because it serves its purpose.
0: Hmm. Radical acceptance and responsibility. I love that. It's like extreme ownership and taking control of that. I, I want to, so something that I, I've been on this journey of kind of rewriting lots, I think everybody should be on this journey, but I've been kind of chipping away at this for the past few years more intensely. And one of the things that really helped me was to interview, uh, well, I guess it's cause I'm a, I'm a, I'm a natural podcaster, but I literally use it as an excuse. I'm like, Hey, you know, one day I want, you know, for for my, I have two grandparents that are still around and it's like, I want my, you know, my grandkids to maybe even, well, how cool would it be if you could listen to a conversation with your grandma or great, great grandpa, that's not around anymore. I thought that would be cool. So I use it as an excuse to interview them. But what, what came as a byproduct of doing that as an exercise is like, I saw some of that programming and how that showed up in their life and, and, and then how, my parents got that from them and that was just really interesting. So, I think that that if if you're listening and you have uh, you know grandparents that are still around, if you can use that as an excuse and it doesn't have to be anything heavy, just find out about their lives. Like what did they go through? Where like how, like if they immigrated, how did they come to the United States? What was what was what did their parents do? I think those are all things. That, yeah, I think you t- you talk about this specifically in the book Connecting Your Family Scarcity Dots is that did I did I get that right? Have you done something similar or you where you've worked to unpack it like this?
1: Um, like in my book or just in my journey,
0: just in general, I mean, maybe, maybe it's yeah. not even an interview or anything crazy like that, but it's like, you have to right. have you done the work. I mean, obviously yes. you have, but like yes. you went through identifying what your parents For have done. Sure. Like one,
1: one clear example is, um, uh, my dad's dad was murdered at gunpoint, basically my grandpa, which I never met cause he died when my dad was 12. That's funny. Cause my Or interesting, because my dad's dad died when he was 12 and then he died when I was 12. (laughs) But I realize now, because my dad had kids with three different women. And so in total, with all my half brothers and sisters, there's nine of us or eight of us now in the physical. And I've always said lots of people, small family, because we, we never grew up around each other. Um, it just wasn't normal. We, we didn't see each other again, especially the ones that aren't for both of my parents And I believe that my dad didn't really know how to express Uh love or be vulnerable or intimate Because he had a lot of trauma from his loss of his dad And so yeah. he basically did the best he could with what he knew but what he knew was limited and so again, going back to the earlier part of our conversation is I can't blame him or hold any resentment because he didn't know he did the best he could with what he knew and what he knew was limited.
0: Yeah. Love that. So just as a recap, if you want to pick up your copy, breaking through the four, uh, it's breaking through going the journey from going impossible to I'm possible, right? Did I get that? Yeah. I love that subtitle. That's, that's, that's awesome. So anybody can check that out on Amazon. Where else can they find out the book, or do you want them to go to your site? Where would they want to go if they want to read Amazon's the book? Amazon's the
1: best place. That's, that's the only place I have it uh, listed. And uh, yeah, it's good for anybody. It's, it's not an Airbnb book where it only applies for people who want to create, you know, success with Airbnb. It's just anybody who picks it up can, I feel can benefit in some shape or form.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I read the whole thing yesterday and the day before that, and it's fantastic. And just hearing the stories and everything that you overcome and how you've turned everything into something that's serving you is just absolutely incredible. And there's plenty of lessons for people to learn there. So uh, we'll start concluding because I know you got to get going here. So the last question I always like to ask people, and then we can kind of uh, go from there, is what does, what does happiness mean to you today, Jorge?
1: Happiness to me is, one, living in the moment and just being grateful for wherever I am. Because I've learned that, you know, acquiring say assets or more financial abundance outside of your necessities doesn't necessarily create higher levels of happiness. And so the biggest thing, right? And this, is, this isn't this is something that I've mastered. It's like a work in progress, but it's just being happy with where you are in the moment and also being just Present Because sometimes as entrepreneurs, we get so caught up in doing that we forget to just be in the moment. So for me, it's about being in the moment, uh, being grateful for what I do have, being grateful for health, family, and meaningful relationships.
0: So beautiful. I will not add anything else to that besides we've already talked about some places that can listen. So, I mean, I guess want to make sure in case people are... On a bike or doing some dishes, and you want to get a reminder, so we can go to the Jorge Contreras, and that's both uh, your YouTube channel um, and what was the other thing that you mentioned? Podcast, YouTube channel and your Instagram podcast and the website
1: thejorgecontreras.com.
0: Okay, and Amazon, go check out Breaking Through. Um, so, would highly recommend all that. And then I just want to have a really quick conversation with you, listening right now, and I want to say. If this is your very first episode, you were you were scrolling through some stuff and you had the chance, you're like, hey, this sounds really interesting because Brandon probably came up with this an awesome title with Jorge and all the stuff that he's come through and you're here listening with us today and uh, I, I just want to say how grateful I am. You could be here anywhere else but you decided to be listening with us and if you're returning, you know how much I appreciate you for coming back week after week. You're absolutely what makes this possible and whether you are new or returning, the favor I always ask is that if you've listened to something today that inspired you, which if you're still listening, you absolutely listen to some stuff that I'm sure inspired you, whether it was jorge you know going from not knowing that he was a fish swimming in water and you know just taking people across the border or selling drugs to creating a bachata company and and all this real estate stuff there's something in there that can absolutely change someone's life if you share this with them so it'll make both my day and jorge's day if you take this the second to share that Uh, but whether you do that or not i appreciate you so much for listening and jorge thank you so much for your time any final things final things you want to say before we head out today
1: Yeah, man, you're such a great uh, podcast host. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you. This has been awesome. We'll talk to you soon, friend.